consumers now, they, they, they really want to have a say. And in some countries, they even really expect to have a say. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Roy, a warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Sylvan. I'm really happy to be here as well. You are the co-creator of TBO, the consumer empowerment company. And we usually like to start with the personal background of our guests. So you actually studied European social and political studies at the University College in London. So first of all, my question, why did you decide to go and study abroad? Yes, yeah, so it started a little bit earlier, actually, when I was uh, when I was 13, I think I heard that it was possible to go abroad for a year at the age of 15. And without thinking too much about what that might mean, I just knew I wanted to do that. And since then, it hasn't really stopped. So after graduating high school in Switzerland, after the Matura here, I, I was quite excited to look at options outside as well. Mm-hmm. And then at the time, also my cousin had studied abroad in London. So he, he kind of guided me and I went through the interviews. And at some point I was like, well, I did all of this now. I might as well go and give it a shot. And where did this desire to go abroad and study there come from? Were you always just a natural, curious person or what really triggered you to go abroad? <laughs> yes, I think it's it's probably something to do with the curiosity and also with this wish for um, freedom and to know have this sense of exploration as well mm-hmm. and and finding something i think it's a combination of those things yes i also like the freedom aspect because then after your studies you actually worked in private equity and also in brand management so you basically worked for other people for companies so that doesn't sound like a lot of freedom right <laughs> i i was really fortunate to have really amazing bosses every time um even at so on the on the family office side it was a very small team so it was also a very familiar there and mm-hmm. then i also worked at a very large company at dksh which has over 30,000 people which is not small anymore so it's a very big company and even within there i i always had bosses who gave me a lot of um, freedom and independence within that big company as well and how did then these big company experiences actually shape you to then also eventually become an entrepreneur yourself? When I started at DKSH, I was at head office here in Switzerland, supporting the COO on more, say, strategic topics, more um, so acquisitions or, or um, kind of bigger projects, strategic projects within the company um, across the different countries. And then when I went into the business side, so I moved to Thailand, I was supposed to be there for three months for a project. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- at the end, I was there for four years uh, <laughs> because I, I then uh, went into the business side on the consumer side to develop the own brands division. So I was there to start from scratch and have, if you will, a, sm- a small startup within the company to build brands from scratch sometimes. And others were there to expand into other countries. And that's how I got a lot of touch points also with e-commerce. Um, for example, we launched an oral care brand in China. We did um, food in Malaysia and in Singapore. We did car care in Australia. So all over the place, um, different type of products in different industries. And that really got me quite curious again and quite excited to see all the possibilities that are out there. When was then the final step where you then said, hey, I can actually do what I'm doing here for someone else, for a larger company. I can actually do that myself. Was there any trigger point or any special moment when you realized, hey, now it's the time to start my own company? It was it was not a, um, a clean-cut transition. It was not, say, the typical, I had already started this business when I was working at a big company or anything like that, and then cut off and went and did my own. Mm-hmm. But it was more a decision that after having spent quite a few years working for a big company and being also based in Asia for four years, that now it was a point of to make a decision whether to stay there and, and continue that maybe in a, in a new challenge, but mm-hmm. within that area, or then take a step out. And I did that step quite consciously. I also had, I um, luckily I have to say, I had the instinct to also have a, a coach um, 
on the side, personal coach more that prepared me for that, which was great. And I then left and took four months and consciously said in those four months, I will not take, take a decision on mm -hmm. what I will do next. To Then what I did is I took so of my 100% of my time, I focused 80% on things that I was really interested in, which was at the time already so e-commerce and blockchain. So those two topics. And the 20%, I, I gave it to chance, gave myself time to see what else is out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe something I hadn't even come across yet. And what happened during these four months then? So, of course, I didn't just do nothing. So I actually, <laughs> I also consciously started meeting up with a lot of people that I thought was were doing really interesting things. Mm -hmm. Also went to events. I really just broke out into also different cities um, in, in the US, in Europe as well, and in Asia. And I started filling a, a pipeline of potential things that I could do after those four months. And I started rating those projects or ideas or initiatives or jobs in certain key values that I had mm -hmm. and ranking those. And out of those, yeah, then I boiled them down to two projects that I really liked. Which were these two? Um, so one clearly is Thibaut, mm -hmm. um, which is the one that then crystallized uh, really shortly after that this was the one that I want to dedicate my time to. The other one was a project that was more in the, say, social media for good space mm -hmm. to incentivize people to contribute more and, and living a, a positive mindset. And how do you actually take that decision? You know, you had two promising business ideas. What helped you to make the, the right decision for you there? I think one key component, aside from those criteria that, that I had set for myself, um, like highly, scale, highly scalable, um, also that I could actually have a big impact myself on it mm -hmm. um, and that it also added value to the surroundings, to the world. So those were the, the key criteria that I really wanted to have. But then it was also just the day-to-day -day working relationship with the people, which in the end, what I mean by that is my, my co-founder, Alan, which um, we really got along very quickly in a, in a really good way. Yeah, then in 2017, you actually founded Thibault. Where do you meet your co-founder, Alan? How did that story happen? <laughs> so it, it happened through my oldest friend. So my friend from since we we're two years old, three years old, and Alan studied together. Mm -hmm. And actually towards the end of their studies, um, Oliver, he said, uh, well, you guys, you know, just go for a drink. You guys should just meet. And we did that. I was still living in Bangkok. It was at a place called Game Over. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect place to start a company. <laughs> and it was this highly like gaming. It was a national uh, Thai team for, for esports, basically. Oh, wow. It was okay. there training, but it was also a bar. And that's where that's where we met for the first time um, over yeah, just a drink and to chat. He was traveling there at the time. So it was not to say it was not a brainstorming session about business necessarily, but we left a good impression, I guess, on each other, yeah. And then you, you still, you know, you just got to know each other right there. What then convinced you to actually start a company with Alan? Because you didn't have any previous work relationship together or history, anything. Yeah, so this was a year or so later only, a year okay. and a half later. So then that was still when I was working um, for the KSH at the mm -hmm. time. And that was then the transition period. So after that and during the transition period, we started uh, meeting up. I, I moved back to Switzerland also. So that's why I was here then in Switzerland. And we started meeting up first, you know, once a month and then every two weeks and at some point pretty much every week. And then at some, and then we said, well, look, this just makes sense. Let's do this. Was there also any initial traction that you already built? Because I know you started out with a survey initially. What gave you then the confidence to say, okay, you know, now we only like almost work every day on it. Uh, really, really build a company around that that topic of menswear. Yeah, so I think to to maybe start with what we wanted to have, what were the criteria was mm -hmm. to have to build a, a business that was highly scalable, that we could um, reach a big target audience as well, and that had um, the economics behind it that made sense. Mm -hmm. So this was this is how we then ended up with looking through the different numbers on the different categories as well. 
and we found that for you know starting up and and starting out with a new product actually menswear and more specifically at the time also underwear was a really interesting category um, for men mm -hmm. why was that so interesting um, several different features first of all it's so for online first businesses with a physical component it's important that you have a kind of a, a basket size that is not not too high but not too low either because if it's too high people will not convert or only very late yeah. and if it's too low it's difficult to compensate for the acquisition cost so we found that with uh with this underwear topic it was really easy to get people to try the product for the first time to give us a shot mm -hmm. and add a interesting customer acquisition cost as well and with the product itself it's a repeat business it's not a subscription model yeah. but if especially men they think they like the product and it, it's super comfortable mm -hmm. they will come back out of convenience and and build this trust with that yeah. so this was our um, acquisition product and the other features of 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 the category is also that you can ship it as a letter up to yeah. three pieces depending on the country as well so it's it's very cost effective logistics wise mm -hmm. and it's also um in terms of fit so especially in the apparel category fit is usually a big topic mm -hmm. and returns rate can go to 40 50 percent of of revenue and with the underwear category because there is a stretch to it if you're off by a size or it's not a perfect fit there's still a stretch in there so you will have super low return rates that's amazing so we have under you know from the start really under two three percent wow yeah wow which I'm is blown a huge away. difference yeah yeah if you look at the other numbers like Zalando or anything that's like a huge difference yeah so wow. especially when you start out you want to make sure that when you sell a product that the most of the, most of the products don't come back anymore yeah yeah and you know we also quickly mentioned this survey that was basically the beginning of of your journey with tpo and also with underwear at mm -hmm. the beginning talk a bit more about that survey what happened there what did you do with the survey yeah so we started selling our first product our first underwear product uh, let's call it version zero and we were starting selling quite well and we had our first 5,000 email subscribers on our website quite quickly nice and we then got to a point because I'm not a fashion designer Alan's not a fashion designer we were okay like where do we go from here how do we improve this product and how can we make our customers happy that they come back and we can also acquire and expand our business and we just did what felt really natural to us so we asked people who bought what they thought about it and not only what they thought about it but also how we could improve it what other things they like and it was this huge survey it was a 25 question survey more than half of the questions were open-ended mm -hmm. so just a text box yeah. and we sent it out to the 5,000 subscribers and thought well you know if 15 people 20 people reply we're happy <laughs> at least we get really good feedback sure and we got over 2,000 replies so more than 40% of people replied without financial incentive. Talk about the good conversion rate. <laughs> <laughs> so for us, this was extremely surprising. Mm -hmm. We did not expect that. And it was so surprising that we took a step back and, and it got us thinking, like, why did so many guys reply when we asked them about menswear, about underwear, which was, we thought, not a topic that guys necessarily wanted to talk about. Yeah. But you probably hit the right angle there, a, a hot topic that is really important to people and that there's still a problem to be solved, right? Yes. So that, uh, yes. And then also what we realized once we started doing a bit more research is that it's also the, the mentality, the mindset of consumers have shifted a lot. So it varies a little bit by culture and by country. Mm -hmm. But we, what we've then realized is that uh, consumers nowadays, they, they really want to have a say. And in some countries, they even really expect to have a say. So it's this mindset of, I want to shape whatever I, I buy, whatever I wear. And I know what I want also. So customers are, are, you know, some of them extremely particular about how they like 
their their t-shirts, their their shorts, their underwear. Mm-hmm. And and this is what we then made our company's DNA. So we made this consumer empowerment really the DNA of what we do. And we then later also found found out that there is a word for it called co-creation. We didn't even know at the time. <laughs> and that this is we really started seeing this big picture that this is a big movement that is happening. Um, along with um, also technology that now enables this global collaboration mm-hmm. in, in a big way. And also that um, the sustainability aspect was a big part of that to really shape relevant products. There, there are so many different points that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> the, the first one is, you know, if you ask people for feedback, like let's say you ask 100 people, you probably also get 100 op- different opinions, right? So how do you then prioritize what you actually build into the product and what not? I, I imagine that must be super difficult. Mm-hmm. So I think to start off, it, it's really important to say that we're not a custom-made business. Right. So because we, you want to completely avoid that, right? Yeah, that would so be we, madness. So what we are building is, is this, it's still the, the number one thing is that we're building a scalable business yeah. model. So if we were to go into custom-made, it would make it very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. You can think of it of more of data points. So we we invite consumers, so they can be customers. They don't have to be. You can also participate without having bought something from us. Okay. And then we we analyze the data um, by now in a in a really automated way, in terms of and push and pull as well. So we by now also created our own software. Where. On our own website, it's kind of a plugin to our e-commerce site where the community can engage, create rooms, chat about things, develop products. And through that, there is some natural engagement where we get a lot of analytics out. So we, we know kind of what are topics that are getting more and more trending mm-hmm. within the community. And once we identify those things, we can make a more specific topic about it and, and channel those community members that we think are relevant for this topic to really develop a specific product and out of it. So it's this back and forth of, of wider kind of taking input, but then being very specific also about things like, for example, um, November last year, we started hearing more and more about comfort. Comfort is a really, really big topic for us in general. Mm -hmm. So comfy, comfort and lounge, and then pants started coming up more in in the machine learning part of of the software in the back end and we realized okay there there seems to be some chatter going on about lounge pants but we didn't know what exactly people wanted and and sometimes they didn't necessarily know they just started chatting about it more Mm -hmm. and then we decided to make this a topic but not to say this is the lounge pant that the the brand will launch Mm -hmm. but more like this we're hearing that this is a topic here we'll invite everybody in our entire audience to then chip in and, and chat about it up to then to a point where it gets very, very granular. So what kind of, does it have a zipper? Does it not? Does it, what kind of zipper? Where? Um, and so on and so on. Right. And what happens then? Like then you basically sort of really co-create, as you mentioned before, the final product with your community, right? Because it gets more and more specific. And then when do you decide, okay, now it's like enough for feedback. Now we go into production. How does that process look like? Mm-hmm. So from our um, software, from the from the tool, when we see that there is enough data points to get a, a first request for a quote, we have in the back end, we have different vendors, of course, that are attached to that, mm-hmm. who can then really quickly tell us, okay, this is the minimums that we need to produce. This is what it will cost roughly. And then we can pretty quickly tell the community members, look, this is what we need to achieve to get it out the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's also the economical check, so to say, that you also do in the back end. Yeah, so, so yes. So I think th- there is three components, and I just mentioned sustainability before. Right. So for us, it's important that there is the so financial sustainability, meaning that if we launch a new product, we only launch a new product when we see enough demand. Mm-hmm. And demand, not just, let's say, there is enough chatter about it, yeah. but there is actually demand on a commitment side. So so like pre-orders. Pre-orders, yeah. 
yeah. things like that. So we can see that there is enough traction mm -hmm. at the price point that we would need to go for as well. Of course. Yeah. And and through that, we make sure that it's highly demand driven and sustainable from a also um, ecological point of view, mm -hmm. especially in the US, which is our, our main market. Over half of the clothes that are produced are never sold and thrown away. Yeah, that's madness. <laughs> so they're produced because we have they have to always bring out new products into the store to drive traffic mm -hmm. as well. And, and there's this demand to, to have that in store, for example, or new collections. And we really turn this around. We say, no, look, we will only develop a new product and, and produce it. If there is demand there, we know we will sell it. Yeah. And we don't want to throw away anything that we produce. In that regard, I mean, you basically completely changed the game, right? So instead of the pull into the market, you do it with a push. Uh, sorry, instead of doing a push into the market, you do it with a pull, right, from the community. Right. So in that regard, does that also support your margins? Because I imagine that the channel, the traditional clothing brands, they need to have a super high margin to be actually able to waste 50% of their inventory, which you don't have to do. So what impact does that have on, on your pricing? Um, yeah, so we don't have to factor in wastage that's true and we don't and also returns are are really low right i would have to know exactly and have to compare how the different brands what their margins are and how they're structured i guess different brands structured in different ways so i can't say 100 percent um we're better by it that much but we don't yes so it's true we don't need to factor in wastage into the margin structure then still, you, you probably then are able to offer a more competitive price compared to the other offerings there while still having a pretty nice margin. So I imagine you must be quite happy with your margin, I could imagine. Yeah, so what we want to do is on the price point, uh, we always want to create a product that is very, very good. So mm -hmm. also sustainably good by all the standards we meet with um, the different labels that are that are out there, but also raw materials. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the demand-driven part, but also the raw materials we use. We work a lot with bamboo fabrics, which are also vetted um, bamboo sources. That is, um, for now, at least the fabric that we think is um, just super comfortable, very sustainable also from a water usage point of view. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, also highly functional. So it's very breathable. You know, you don't um, sweat that quickly. And it also doesn't smell that quickly as maybe other more uh, synthetic fibers might. I mean, this sounds all, almost too good to be true. This is crazy. It's like you really invented a more efficient and much better process than was out there. Yes. Yeah, so we think that the future is really for organizations that invite their consumers, their customers to shape better products. Mm -hmm. We really believe in this more open way of communication and also a way of communication. And maybe the first product is not going to be the, the final, final product. Mm -hmm. There might be room for improvement, but that it definitely fulfills all the highest quality standards that it should. And I also wonder, you know, you, you co-create the products with your customers, with your users, so to speak. In what way does that also, you know, pay into the customer loyalty? Mm -hmm. So we by quite a lot what we did is we we always saw it ourselves in in our numbers on the repeat order rates and the loyalty rates also over time mm -hmm. um but we didn't want to just claim it ourselves and say this is um what we see and our truth only but we also um, passed on anonymized data to data science researchers at uh, eth zurich yeah. and they did a study um, based on our, our data and what they got back with was even more, um, say, surprising than what we had seen before in our data ourselves. What they saw is that creators, so somebody who had a touch point with co-creating something, had a three times higher um, repeat order rate. So they were three times more likely to come back. And not only that, but they're also 1.8 times higher basket sizes. Wow. And they're slightly faster in coming back as well than non-creators. Yeah. So those things combined give us a kind of an interest rate effect over time that we can, you know, spend some more to acquire customers. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, 
Of course, there is those components of customer acquisition, but because we know that they'll come back with a way higher likelihood, the the return is is much quicker and also more sustainable over time. Does that also mean that you actually can spend more money in the acquisition than your potential competitors? So again, there it's it's difficult to get a clear number sure. on the competitors. Yeah, exactly how, and also they might calculate it differently. Yeah. But we know that for ourselves, it's uh, it's very interesting metrics in terms of um, investing into growth. Yes, and originally you did not start with the direct by consumer method to to actually start creating your products, right? How how did that tipping point come around when you actually decided to switch? Was there any certain event happening, or was it really just a survey that we already discussed? The this big, let's say, aha moment was really the survey there. Mm -hmm. And this is how we then got thinking of how we could do this more and more rigorously. So the way we we involve the community right now, of course, wasn't there right after the survey. So this is also an evolution. But really, this was the the change of of how we looked at the business. You know, it, it sounds like such a powerful setup that you have found here for your company. Do you think that any company that does not leverage that is just missing out big time? Because also, obviously, the KPIs look incredibly strong. Or is that direct by consumer model not applicable or transferable to many other sectors than fashion industry, for example? What do you think about that? So I think it's applicable to a lot of different industries. I think in, let's say, high tech um, and and very high, like research intense industries, probably less, Mm -hmm. of course. But then there's a lot of other industries that are, that this could be really, really interesting for. Having said this, I think there is a complete change in, in mindset, let's say from how it used, like how brands used to be in terms of developing a product, but Mm -hmm. also communicating which was much more, let's say, central and then communicating it out later. And now Thibaut is really involving the consumer at the, I mean, they decide where, where, where it goes. Of course, we are there to ensure quality, we ensure delivery, we ensure communication and the standards. This is what, what we really stand for. But then the rest, the the big part of the communication decision and and development is by the community. And then the the last component, I think, is also the the IT part. Mm-hmm. So especially when you look at big companies, I think also there, the processes are so ingrained in in the IT as well that it might be tricky to just well, from one day to the next switch it around and basically reverse it. That all of a sudden, no, you start with consumer input first and then go into supply chain and then have this feedback loop. Might be a bit trickier. Mm-hmm. And this is also why we, we didn't find the software that did that for us. So that's why we developed our own. So that's how, how that started. Because we, we were looking for a way to make this, again, scalable. Mm-hmm. this business model to not having this constant one-on-one interactions or anything like that, any manual work. And that's how we created our um, direct by consumer software that is a front end and a back end. And it's really as a plugin to our e-commerce site. Today's episode is brought to you by Relay. Relay is a Bitcoin only investment app from Switzerland available on Android and iOS that gives everyone an easy and secure way to invest in Bitcoin with minimal barriers to entry. No deposit, KYC verification or registration is required. After you download the app, just choose the amount of euros or Swiss francs you want to invest and make the payment using a bank transfer. That's it. You can start with as little as 10 euros or Swiss franc and pay 0% transaction fees until the end of 2021. Alternatively, you can automate this process by starting a weekly or monthly savings plan and buy Bitcoin at regular intervals. To learn more, head over to relay.ch slash ambassadors slash Swisspreneur and buy Bitcoin with Relay, Europe's easiest Bitcoin investment app. 
How does that exactly work in practice? Can you elaborate more uh, how the software actually works from a consumer perspective and then what you as a company do in the back end? Sure. So the way we look at a store, or the way that you could look at an online store, any online store, is you could look at it as a physical store. When you walk into a store, into a physical store, and it's it might be a really big store, but it's just just products, and otherwise there are no people, there's no music, there is no cashier, there is no one to ask you if you're looking for something or not, or how they could help. There's just you walking around looking through products. And then you might buy something or you might not, and you leave the shop again. And this is how pretty much every online shop or a lot of online shops are right now. And what our software does is that it's that, but then we have a community space. So you walk into the store and you see there are some people hanging out on a sofa and chatting about um, this product that they bought. Then there are some other people hanging out on another couch and talking about um, the last car they bought. And then there is some others who are like planning about a, a product lab inside of the shop where they can develop awesome new cool things about a product that they're excited about with others from who are also visiting the shop. Mm-hmm. And this is how we view the, our direct-by-consumer software. It's making the online shopping experience social and also productive. And then on the back-end part, like, you obviously get a lot of data points, a lot of information from everything that is happening there. You also briefly mentioned that already. So what do you then do in, on the back-end part with all the people you know, exchanging on the sofas in the store? So on the back-end... We, we see on a, let's say, a big data side, we can see what is engaging, what is interesting, what is not um, on a content level, but then also clearly on a product level as well. Mm-hmm. We might identify if um, one product has something off, like something might, be, hasn't go- might not have gone right on a specific product or in a batch or, or something like that. Yeah. And we can identify that super early. But not only that, it's also on the customer support side. So customer support wise, we also have rooms for that um, where people can chat about something that a question, they weren't sure about something and order was late. Then you have, of course, our customer support team replying there publicly as well, mm-hmm. but also other customers. So we have also super fans who might reply like, oh, no, don't worry, this is on the way because of that and so on. So there's a lot of engagement and just authenticity through that. That For me, this really sounds mind-blowing and amazing at the same time. It's, it's crazy. It's like a completely new way of, of experiencing your online shopping. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's really, we're surprised. Yeah, just, or just recently, a... A community member opened a new room, so anybody can open a room, mm-hmm. either a public room or a private room as well, yeah. and wanted to start a Movember initiative with nice. fellow tribe members to see how much the Tebow team could contribute to the Movember cause, for example. So there is all sorts of dynamics happening in that space. I imagine that how do you then get the people, you know, engaging with you in in your own software? I could imagine that they already have thousands of channels like WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram and everything. How do you then make sure that they actually come and use your channels, your rooms that you open there? Because you don't seem to be embedded in, in the existing channels like, as I mentioned, Instagram or TikTok or anything, right? So we we see it as complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... So we really see all those existing media channels, social media channels, as always very important um, channels that bring traffic as well. And we're active on those channels too. Right. However, what we see as an industry-wide topic or issue, you could almost say, is that there is quite dependence. There is a dependency on those channels. So that organic reach is being cut year over year. And that brands, retailers have to start paying more and more. Customer acquisition costs are rising. And, and this, is, this is reality. This is where it's going. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do with that is 
to justify that we can actually scale even though those are rising. So what we do is we see all those channels that you mentioned, the different media channels as, as really important. Mm -hmm. But once someone has actually come to our shop, we want to retain and keep as many people there as possible because this is where, where it's free to communicate. We can set the rules that we want to communicate in right. and the vibe and it's more on brand as well. And we get the data also. On, on Facebook or Instagram or, or TikTok, you might get some demographics, but it doesn't really give you much insight on what to do with yeah. it. What data are you specifically interested in or looking at that helps you to then make the best decisions? So some things are um, customer journey, for example, mm -hmm. how to make sure that somebody has a really good experience without being pushy, but really being relevant. I think that's really important to make that experience more about relevance and showing and giving content to people that they want. Right. So this feedback loop helps that. And and the other one is, of course, the um, metrics. I mean, sales metrics, conversion metrics, and making sure, again, being relevant and not pushy with that. Mm -hmm. And there are two very important metrics that you focus on. One is unit economics and also forecasting stock inventory. Can you talk a bit more how your community data and your own software data actually helped you to uh, to make a good call there? Mm -hmm. So yes, with, with that, there is quite a few data points. So just purely the sales numbers, of course, we mm -hmm. can get a pretty good gauge on our core products that are on stock and deliverable, how much to replenish. And also for future products, as, as we were chatting before, to make sure that we, when we launch a new product, that we launch the right quantities as well. So those indications within the rooms and pre-orders give us a pretty good idea of how much to produce in a first release. And again, to sort of close the cycle to not have any products that go to waste, basically, right? Right. Yes, exactly. And, and with that also, I think metrics, just talking about this, so once from when we launched the software, when we plugged it into our e-commerce, we were also quite surprised about what, what happened with the, the, the numbers there. So the daily average time spent per visitor, so including all the bouncers, people mm -hmm. who leave after two seconds, yeah. including all of those, it went to over 12 minutes. What? Per visitors. <laughs> including all the bouncers? That's insane. Yes. <laughs> so people really spend time there, chat, read, yeah, and and come back for it. And not only that, so also our um, page views per visitor went to by now it's over eight page views per visitor. Wow, average. How, how can you explain these numbers? I think it's really got to do with this interest to read into our content, to also mm -hmm. engage with community members, ask questions. And, and spend time there. It's it's really that. And then, of course, we've got the e-commerce component. So people shop around. Right. This is still our number one. I mean, to also be clear, we're, we sell products and this mm -hmm. is what we mainly drive. So there is that component. But the, the increase in time spend is really in the, in the community space. Oh. And, of course, our bounce rates also dropped by a lot. So it, it's way under 30% th since then depending on, on on how much we drive acquisition as well, it's under 25%. Yeah. These are really strong numbers. Well, I'm, I'm just like blown away by the, the data that you just shared. It's really impressive. Yeah, we were also surprised. And because of that, what it, what it also helps is because Google then also realizes that somehow people who visit your sites, they, they like the content, they spend time there. Mm -hmm. So it helps with ranking as well. Yeah. So you today you follow the data. At the beginning, you followed the traction because you did not start in Switzerland be, despite being a Swiss founder, so to speak. You actually went global from day one. Why was that the right strategy for you? I, I think especially the US is and also was a very important market for you. Yes. So we are a Swiss company. We're based. We're a Swiss-based company. But yes, our main market is uh, North America. And it started off just with that idea of building something scalable. So for us, it was clear that we wanted to build something in English in that case, because that was looking at 
languages, a very scalable language. And that's how we started. And with a website, with our social media at the beginning. And we just started seeing that visitor numbers, but then also conversion rates for a very new brand that we were back then. We're still quite new, but back then we were completely new. Was just way better in the US. And then we just started to focus more and more on the US also because it just has 300 million something inhabitants and half of them were in our target audience and they will speak one language, have one currency. Was that any logistical challenge or any, you know, like cultural challenge to to go to the US first and sell your products there? No, uh, challenge I wouldn't say. I mean, the, at the beginning, um, we had our first uh, products, of course, with us here in Switzerland. So we, we shipped it there from here. Right. At the very beginning, um, it wasn't a challenge. It was a bit more costly, of course. Um, but we at the beginning was just finding out where traction could come from. Mm -hmm. That was that phase at the very beginning. Right. And then, of course, now we have um, our logistics set up in the US as well. And it's automated from there. And we make sure that the you know, orders get delivered within three to five days for existing product, mm -hmm. longer for pre-orders. Yeah. yeah. And what do you actually do yourself? So today it sounds like logistics is something that you take care of with a partner in the local geographies. Mm -hmm. And your focus is really on your software, on, on the acquisition of the customers. So it's it's basically also a bit of an online game by giving the hardware component to external partners to a certain degree. Yeah, so you're right. So we're really focusing on on two things. One is uh, growth. So meaning, of course, driving sales, um, mm -hmm. driving uh, growth of the community, so customer acquisition. That's one component. And the other component is further developing our software. And there we have quite a few more modules in the pipeline that we'll release in the next couple of months as well. So we're really excited about that part there. So does, this is what, what we do really in-house. And, and with that, meaning also the quality assurance. So making sure right. the quality is really good. Um, logistics in terms of not the fulfillment of, it, of the product, but really logistics, making sure that someone internally within the team here is really on top of things, that, that everything gets delivered. And even if that should not be the case, you would hear pretty fast from your community. Yeah, yeah, we would hear very <laughs> fast. <laughs> Another thing that recently happened is you raised 800,000 Swiss francs by selling tokenized shares, something that is really sort of a, a pioneering act, right? Because there have not been a, that much stories about doing that. So why was that the right decision for you? So since the, the very beginning, and so end of 2017, Alan and I want, were then really brainstorming and wanting to find new ways to empower the consumer. Yep. And back then already, we, you know, that was the, the first kind of ICO craze in the blockchain space then. And we saw that this would be, from a technical point of view, a possibility to also um, let the community members participate in in also financial um, components of, of the company. So mm -hmm. not just involving them, but really also giving right. to them. What at the time for us was tricky though, because we were really keen on, on building a, a real business, a serious business with a lot of the projects that were seen as not so serious um, at the time yeah. with, with the coins or tokens at the time. So for us, it was a contradiction, which is why at that point we 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 kind of put that on hold. And and now earlier this year, a new law passed in Switzerland, and with that law now, what made what it made possible is that there is um, that Switzerland allows for companies to tokenize shares and to really um, depict the shareholder registry on the blockchain, and. With that, it was all of a sudden something very, very tangible and something very, very also credible and serious mm -hmm. that was possible. So when we heard that, we were like really intrigued by it and started looking into it and got also then the introduction um, from my brother to Aktionariat, who then um, 
or build the kind of the the back end attack of it. And I can imagine, you know, there are still some pros and cons about the different approaches that you could choose from. So from your perspective, now going through that process of tokenizing your own shares, what are the pros and cons of, of that approach? So for us, the, the big pro, let's say for our business model, the community-led business model mm -hmm. is that it it's just a further step in this in our in our mission to empower the consumer. Because now any consumer for now, a resident of Switzerland, anybody who wants to can buy our shares in a tokenized form, so digital share, through our own website. Now within a couple of clicks. And the share, the, the transfer happens, it can be through bank transfer or through Ethereum or crypto franc payment. And the shares are then sent directly to that person's mobile phone, to the wallet and is then registered in our shareholder registry mm -hmm. with all shareholder rights. Um, and, and this for us was just incredible that we now have the possibility to, whoever wants to, really give them the same rights as, for example, Al and I do as co-founders. Yeah. And what are some drawbacks of that strategy, if you experienced any along the process? So, so far, we haven't gotten any specific drawbacks. I think one question for us was also always the the question of, well, how much time would that take? How much of our resources would it take? Mm -hmm. Would it take up too many resources versus the business we want to drive? Yeah. And so far, um, we were really overwhelmed by by the the success of the launch. I think we we were really happy with how we launched it. Now we're continuously raising still, so the. The token is still live on the website. It's still possible to buy the token on the website. And there is always continuously people who start buying in now again. So we're so there's really positive there. At the same time, of course, we need to also communicate. Right. So yeah. we we we've updated we have our investor relations page now, which we update, which we communicate, but it's also for us a way to leverage our new found investor community. So in our investor community now, we have several serial entrepreneurs. We have customers. We have people who otherwise have really interesting business backgrounds that we can, that now everybody wants to have the best for the company. So we're all in the same boat and we all want to push the business forward. So this is how we now envision to also shape this and have this communication go. Yes, we need to deliver. Mm -hmm. We want to grow as that's our that's what we do at the same time there's also ways for shareholders to contribute if they want to you actually solved one of the biggest problems that way to really incentivize the people and put everybody in the same boat as you just called it yeah. i think that's really one of the biggest problems to solve and if you can do that by giving them tokenized shares and everybody's aligned in terms of we want to that company to succeed and for us, it's, it's, it's exactly just the extension of, of the community-led model. Mm -hmm. This is how, how we're building products as well. Right. This is, okay, we, we got feedback. It might be negative feedback, no. but at least we can work with that to improve the product. And this is also how yeah. we communicate it. So this is just a logical next step for you in, in the journey, yeah. right? How do you actually determine the price of the, of the shares? Is that something that you set or is it as volatile by uh, the demand and, and the offering that is set by the market, or how does that work? Yeah. So for the initial um, launch price, we set it at just 10% higher of a recent round with um, larger private investors that we did, with, with also higher minimum tickets. Mm -hmm. Now there are virtually no minimums. So so it's... And also they're um, transferable now. So there is a way that people can also um, sell them to others or or then eventually to the company as well when there's liquidity. So we thought this is a, a fair price point to start off mm -hmm. based on that. Also from quite notable investors who did their due diligence, right. who went through the entire process of that and also came in earlier. So we said, okay, that's the price point and we just go 10% higher to launch it. Nice. But now that price is fixed for now and it's not changing. Or so this was for the first phase, for the first half a million that we wanted to raise. Okay. 
which we raised within the first weekend of <laughs> launch. So, so after that, we closed that quite quickly. And yeah. from then on, we, we opened phase two, which means phase two is now for every share that is purchased, mm -hmm. the price goes up by a little bit, yeah. by an increment. And for every share that is sold back to the company, so there's also um, some liquidity in there mm -hmm. that the company has put in now um, to, to be able to also sell it back. Yeah. So now there is a price finding mechanism in place through that. Yeah. So yeah, it's really like a, a real publicly traded share. It goes up and down. It's very... It goes up and down. We are, however, still a, we are a private company. I just, of course, course. I want to, this is important to say we're a private company and also it's not a peer to peer um, trading, but mm -hmm. it's really the company selling shares to investors and investors sh selling the shares back to the company. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about potential drawbacks, what we often hear is that if you have too many people in your cap table, it will get more difficult to raise money from future investors. Is that something that you just don't want to do? And Therefore, it's not important to you, or is that a real risk that you see with the approach that you've chosen now? So the the nice thing is that, or let's say the comparison to the more traditional way of crowdfunding is that with the blockchain technology method, is that actually everything is is digital and everything mm -hmm. is online. So I think one of the drawbacks might have been with um, crowdfunding that you had to go through the entire paperwork. Right. really physical paperwork and if someone wasn't around for example to file the paperwork yeah out of 100 people <laughs> waiting for that signature <laughs> waiting for that signature and that was a big drawback and and now with this being completely digital mm -hmm. and also digitally enforceable yeah. it may it takes away that that risk so you basically say we have all options open um for us it's not really a, a drawback at all no we, for us we see it really as complementary Nice. It's a complementary way to raise. And it's something also which is continuous. So we we have now still um, shares in our in our reserve, in the company reserve, mm -hmm. that we're now continuously selling off as new investors on board. Yeah. So this is really a continuous way to raise. It's also some way to raise that as you grow, right. you raise more and more over yeah. time. So it's not just one large amount of money. Now, that actually also makes a lot of sense from a valuation perspective, right? Because your company will hopefully get more and more valuable and then you can continuously raise without having to give it a valuation right now, but actually when you are there, you need the money. Yeah, yeah. So you already shared a few very impressive numbers and there are even more that we can share here. You have now more than 200,000 purchasers, your community is 400,000 strong and you're active and actually deliver products to more than 120 countries. I mean... That's just mind-blowing if you look at that in the short amount of time that you had to build the company. So we all wonder, what's next for you? What do you have planned for the future? So we're what's next for us is, let's say, in the long term, what the vision really is, is to be the consumer empowerment company. Mm -hmm. To show that it's not only possible, but it's really the future of how companies, and in our case, brands are built with collab in a collaborative way in a more open way and also having this yeah a very dynamic workforce that contributes on certain projects and also get compensated for those projects as they go so yes. this is really where we're going with this and and it's also what i think is really interesting for example in the book um exponential organizations how they describe it there and this is something we really also believe in and we see as as the future in a more decentralized way and uh, more specifically now, the next steps here is really to to grow more uh, in terms of um, the community sales uh, products that we bring out collaboratively with everybody, mm -hmm. bring hyper-relevant products out. So really on the growth on that side. And the second part is the, the software, to continue to develop the software on the different modules that are now in the pipeline. And also to to further improve the, the data analytic uh, data analytics side the entire um, machine learning to be even faster and even more accurate mm -hmm. and more relevant with product content that we churn out those are the th two things and and thirdly of course to do this to further f um, raise mm -hmm. 
So with this, we it, we have a quite a variable model, let's say. The, the quicker and the more we raise, the quicker and the more we can grow and develop. And this is the, the third pillar to, to fuel this. You know, after listening to your vision, where you want to go with the company, I also wonder, will there be a certain point in time where you say, we don't care about the physical products anymore and we just become a software company and enable many, many other companies to exactly do what we just did? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, it's a, it's a possibility. It's something that is, we've been asked mm -hmm. previously and it's something, it's how we also built the backend. We see this as a, for now, as a, as a potential big upside. Yeah, I think you have like super strong numbers, uh, super strong community. The only thing that you don't have is recurring revenue and that's how you could get it. Yeah, we do have recurring revenue just to jump on that. Sure. Um, we do have because our, so our main categories are repeat order businesses, yeah, not point. subscription, but repeat yeah. orders. So we have repeat business um, through our channels. So we, for example, we have an email database of 280,000 subscribers and which we can communicate with for free basically and, yeah. and drive the repeat business. Right. So this is, this is a big part of, of what we do and, and the team also spends time on. I'm, I'm really blown away by what you just shared with, with us here today. Another question I'm sure you also received is how about selling the company? I'm, I'm sure that there must be interest from big players that are also just blown away by your numbers because they're probably so much stronger than their own numbers. And you found a very new and much better way to actually co-create with your customers. So exit, yes or no? I mean, first of all, the, the way Alan and I see the business is, of course, it's a business. So it's we grow this to, to scale it. I think this is I think, important to say. Yeah. It's um, we're, we're objective with that. Having said this, we still see quite a lot of room for growth with what we do. So right now we're really focusing on on those three pillars that I mentioned earlier. So growing the software development and financing. This is where our head is at sure. right now. But uh, you never know, maybe the right offer comes around the corner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll talk then. <laughs> Makes sense. So before we wrap up the episode, we have two last parts for you. The first one is about your personal resources and gadgets that you can recommend. Do you have any books or blogs, newsletters, anything that you can recommend to our listeners? Books that I really thought were is fascinating is uh, Exponential Organizations mm -hmm. in terms of just growth mindset, I think, and, and where the future could be. I think some things are already overtaken by now, maybe since the book was written, which is how it is, especially for such a topic. But I think this is for growth mindset, really, really interesting. Another for me, really inspiring book um, from the beginning of when we started is Give and Take by Adam Grant. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I, I like to reread once in a while to remind myself as well to, to be in that collaborative, open mindset to contribute. I think this is a, a book that is, yeah, it's, it's very inspiring. And the, the third one is, well, on news, on the news side, I, I mean, of course, I read the news once in a while or I, I watch like my LinkedIn feed. I think there is quite an interesting source information, but otherwise I, I don't read that day-to-day -day newspaper necessarily. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I did is I subscribed to, for example, to Science News or have an uh, update of whenever something new was discovered, a new species or a new something, just to, to keep the mindset out there that there is growth, that there are still things to be discovered. And I think this is, uh, I really like to see what else is happening out there in the world. Yeah. Amazing. I, I really see that this growth mindset is you already said you want to do something scalable at the beginning. This growth mindset really is your red line throughout the past years, I can, I can tell. The very last part are some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you a short question or a selection, and you have to make a choice or answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Ready. 
What's your favorite clothing piece? T-shirt. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Six. What personal item do you lose most often? If any at all, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Keys. Yeah, classic. Keys, for sure. And what three qualities should an entrepreneur have from your perspective? I think curiosity, tenacity, and also uh, humbleness. Nice. And the last choice, Switzerland or the United States? For what? (laughs) Let's say one for business and one for personal life. What would you choose for both categories? Switzerland. So personally, Switzerland, it's my home. Mm -hmm. I like this uh, injection of US once a while. I think it's uh, it's it's good. It's uh, it's refreshing, yeah. and probably also goes along pretty well with the growth mindset. Yeah, yeah. But if I had to choose Switzerland, nice, Roy. Thank you so much for stopping by today. It's been really a lot of fun and also super impressive to listen to your journey. All the best of luck to whatever you'll tackle in the future. We're super excited to see where you go with Thibaut. Thank you so much, Sevan. It was a pleasure, really. episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.